Turn with me to John chapter 5. As you're turning there, just want to take the opportunity to thank you as a as a congregation. It's it's uh, it's humbling. It's both humbling and encouraging to preach before you. Um, I always feel inadequate when I get up here, um, but I'm I'm grateful for you, uh, for your your listening ear, and that you come back. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you. You're a wonderful body to not only be a part of, but to have the privilege of, of aiding and shepherding. John chapter 5, verse 41 through 47. Actually, let's back up. Let's go to 39. 39 was the last part of our uh, of, of last week's sermon, but let's pick up there because that kind of helps provide the context. Jesus is speaking to, to Jews who are upset with him from healing a man on the Sabbath and not only that but he's made the claim that he's equal with God and so he's he's argued for his equality with God um, and, and he's given a grounds for that that was last week and I'll, I'll dig into that a little bit more but verse 39 we, we pick up and he says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own, his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father God, would you once again open up your word? Father, as in the Old Testament, the, the, the saints of old journeyed to the temple and they saw the sacrifices and they were reminded of your love and your justice and your glory. Father, may we see your Son this morning afresh and anew, high and lifted up and exalted and glorified and loved and treasured. And may we see in Him your love for us unworthy sinners. Father, may it produce in us through your Spirit an otherworldly love for you. She would maybe for some put the love of, of God in, in, in their hearts for the first time in others, rekindle it in others, fan the flame so that it might burn hotter that that would roll out into that same type of self-giving love for others, that ultimately your name would be glorified and praised. So would you meet with us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. When I was, uh, when I was 16, my first vehicle was a, was a white single cab S10 with a standard bed, uh, regular sized tires. I didn't buy big super swampers or anything. Had a V6, and if I wasn't careful, it would burn out, pulling out of pretty much any driveway or anything. And I wasn't a crazy driver. I mean, it was a pretty, was a responsible kid. I can't boast in you know crazy driving. I so, but <laughs> I would burn out if I wasn't careful. But I had that 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 truck, and it had a uh, cassette player in it. If that dates me at all. Um, and my favorite cassette at the time, my favorite. My, my favorite, yeah, I can't even call it a CD, it's a cassette. My favorite cassette at the time was a um, was an album by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It was called Dive. And Dive was my favorite song on that album. A and it says, I'm, I'm diving in, I'm going deep, in over my head. You, you may know the lyrics. But I thought of that song uh, and, and the flashback kind of of that time in my life when I was going over my notes for the sermon this morning because I'm like, you know, we're, we're going in deep this morning. Um, so... Put on your scuba tanks. Um, you know, we're, we're diving in this morning into a, a, a weighty portion of Scripture. Um, so let me, let me do this. Let me give you 
Let me give you a framework for where I want to go this morning. A brief outline. Three points, right? That's very, very simple, okay? It's uncharacteristic of me, but I'm going to have three, three primary points and then uh, a few points of application at the end. So let me, let me give this. Um, I want to ask the question, what's the connection between seeking the glory of God and having the love of God within us? What's the connection between seeking the glory of God and having the love of God within us? Because that's a, that's a pivotal point that Jesus makes here. He makes this issue with the Jews about the glory of God, but that's rooted in the love of God. Okay, so that's where I want to go this morning. And, and I'll give you the answer for that. I'm going to argue for it. Okay, I, I think that what Jesus is telling us is that, the, that a love for God through the gospel through believing in Jesus, fuels the pursuit of a life that glorifies Him. Okay? That a love for God through the gospel, through believing in, in, uh, in Jesus, fuels the pursuit of a life that glorifies God. And Jesus makes this an eternal issue. He makes this an eternal issue with these Jews, and it is so for us. Okay, so that's where I'm going this morning. So my three points are, one, I think Jesus makes a warning here, he gives us a warning primarily in verse 39. He asks a, a fundamental question, and then he gives us a test. Okay, so there's a warning, a fundamental question, and a test. Everybody tracking with me so far? All right, well, let's dive in. So here's the warning. Verse 39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify of me. But you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. If you remember last week, Jesus has just argued. He, he's made, well, weeks ago, um, when we were earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus had made the, the claims that he was, he was equal with God the Father. Okay? That they are, a note right here, make sure I get it right. That they're equal in dignity and honor, but distinct in their roles. Okay, that's, that's what he argues from, uh, from John 19 through, uh, through 30. And then how does he support that claim? I mean, anybody can just say that, but Jesus grounds that ultimately in God the Father's witness of God the Son in the Old Testament, from the Old Testament writings. And we talked about John the Baptist and the role that he played and the works that Jesus performed and that they, and that they gave testimony to him in their works themselves, because they showed him being sovereign over creation, but, m but more than that, and deeper than that, they were pro uh, uh, pro prophetic from the Old Testament. But not only that, and we browse through, just race through Old Testament points of how Jesus was fulfillments of, of Old Testaments, typologically, prophetically, um, all kinds of things. And so that was Jesus' point. It's like the Father has witnessed that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the Son of God, I'm the promised one, I'm what you need for life, and yet you don't believe. And, and the, the phenomenal thing was that the Jews had the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew Abraham. They knew the stories of Abraham, of Moses, of all of these things, and they relied upon them. And yet they didn't see Jesus. And Jesus says, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And so we can, we can pull from this. Here's the warning that it's possible to come in contact with, with the God of Scripture through His Word, even through the church, and yet reject the true Son of God. And I'd, I'd say it's not only possible, it's actually probable. Because Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount, and He says the way is narrow. And the gate is small that leads to eternal life. Okay? And, and so, and, and the way is broad, and the gate is broad that leads to destruction. So the default isn't that if you, if you got a Bible in your house, or you, you have a 15-minute, 10-minute devotional every few days, or you come, to, you know, you come to, to church periodically, or even every Sunday, that you're a Christian, that you actually have genuine faith in Jesus. It's not the default. Uh, I, I think of the story of Pilgrim's Progress, and I, I allude to this often because it's such a phenomenal 
just representation of, of the Christian life. But if you know the story at all, Christian, the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, journeys to the celestial city, which is heaven. And along the path, he's, he, he runs into just trial after trial. And he comes in contact with many, many people who are going the opposite direction. This means the path of their life is going away from God and not towards them. Or they're with him for a season and then they get lost in a field or they wander away or, or they, they don't make it. And, and the point that Bunyan makes is not everybody gets there. N- not everybody endures to the end. It's not the default. I, if, if anything, many stray. And many think that they're going there when they are not in reality. And so the picture of verse 39 is of people who appear to be followers of God, but in reality they're, they're rejecting the true God because they're rejecting the true Son of God. That's Jesus' point. That's his point. He says, look, you've got all the ingredients of faith, but you're not believing. And, and so it benefits us to heed that warning. To, to not think, well, I've, just, I've, I've got this Christian thing down. But to examine ourselves and go, Lord, do I have genuine faith here? Again, we've spent a couple weeks talking about apostasy and, and, and how that's been prevalent in our, in our culture with some, some big name Christian leaders and even just amongst you know, churches, people turning away from the faith and so these these scriptures are crucial for us to examine ourselves and say am I in the faith so that's the warning now here's the question Jesus going through here he asked this question he says how will you believe he says in verse 44 speaking of Jews how will you believe in verse 47, he says, how will you believe my words? Now, he's not asking this question like he's frustrated. Like he's just, you know, if you're a parent and you're sitting with your child and you know, they're, they're trying to figure out a math concept and they're just not getting it. And you just throw up your hands and you're just like, how are you ever going to pass this class if you can't get multiplication? He's, he's not doing that with them. He's not, he's, not, he's not doing that. I think what he's doing is, He's rather, he's giving us a way to examine our hearts to see if there's genuine faith. He's warning them. He's saying, examine yourself. Check and see if what you think is is genuine faith in, in the true God is genuine faith in the true God. Because he says, you've got all the ingredients of faith here, but you're unwilling to believe. There's a lack of willingness there. For them to believe. They're offended at who Jesus claims to be. Even though the Old Testament scriptures just lay this out. That this is who the Messiah would be. So the question then becomes. What's the, what's the barrier here to their unbelief? What's the barrier? And Jesus makes it an issue of glory. So the question is. How will you believe? How will you get over that barrier? And he gives us a test. Whose glory are you seeking? That's the question. Track with me here. He gives the warning there in verse 39 and 40, and then he, he almost seems to kind of shift gears. He, the statement, all, I think if you read it, just if you're reading through it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. He says, I don't receive glory from men. Now, is Jesus saying, I'm not getting glory from people. Nobody's praising me. No, that wouldn't make sense because it says that, I mean, people are following him because of the miracles that he's, that he's doing. There were people all around him when he healed the man um, at the pool of Bethesda in the first part of the chapter. And as we get into chapter 6, it says in verse 2, a large crowd followed him because of the signs he was performing with those who were sick. So he's, he's getting praise from people. So that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? I don't receive or I don't accept, as your version may say, I don't accept glory from men. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm not after that. It's almost as if the Jews were kind of sitting there just, just in, their, in, their, in their minds. Of course, Jesus knows the hearts of people, and so he can see into their hearts. And it's like they're sitting there going, you know, 
you're probably thinking that if we would just pat you on the back and say good job for, for the good thing you did on the Sabbath, that that's what you want. Well, you're, you're just basically like a politician that just wants to earn the favor of people. And if you get that, that's all you want. And you'll go on. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Let me kind of give you a, just a working definition because what does it mean to receive glory? What does it mean to receive glory? Because he says, I don't receive glory from men in verse 41. And then in verse 44, he says, he's speaking of the Jews. He turns this around and he says, you will receive glory from someone else who comes in their own name. So what does he mean by receive glory? I, I give you a definition um, and this is the, the best I could really kind of capture this. To receive glory, or that, that receiving definition, w- what he's talking about, it's to welcome thum- something into your life such that it completes the desire of your heart. To welcome something into your life such that it completes the desire of your heart. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're hungry. Hard day at work, you know, whatever, you miss lunch, you come home, you're hungry. The de- that's the desire of your heart, is you, you need... You're hungry. And so you receive food. Maybe it's put on the table. Maybe you go through a drive-thru, whatever. Your, your body receives it. It takes it in. It digests it. That act of receiving food completes your desire. So you're no longer hungry. You're fulfilled. You're satisfied. I think this, is, this, is a, this captures that idea of what Jesus is saying. He says, I'm, my desire isn't the praise of people, even though he's worthy. Of it. Even though, as we looked at in, in, in Revelation last, last week, um, he's worthy of that praise. He's going to get it. But as John says uh, earlier in, 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 his, in his gospel, he says, Jesus knows the hearts of people and he's not entrusting himself to them. He, he's not willing to accept as authentic and valid the praise of unbelievers. He's not after that. But his desire rather is uh, is the glory of the Father rather than the glory of men. Now we'll get to this in, in a minute in more depth. I think one of the clearest points of this comes in chapter 8, verse 54, where Jesus says, he says, if I glorify myself, it's nothing. But it is my Father who glorifies me. So Jesus desires for the glory of the Father, not the glory of men. And this is the point that he's, he's making with these Jews. He says, you'll accept the glory of somebody else who comes in and that's all they want. They all, all they want is a pat on the back. All they want, you know, is for, for you to, to lift them up. But I'm not after that. In fact, as he says earlier, uh, um, he says, I say these things so that you'll be saved. So I want you to be saved. I'm not after, I'm not after glory. I'm not after praise from you. I want you to be saved. And so Jesus desires the glory of the Father rather than the glory of men. It reminds me of uh, the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, um, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be noticed by them. It's the same thing here. He says, what you want most is the, desire, is the praise of people. You're not actually after the, the praise of God. But it, it kind of raises a question because weren't the Jews thinking they were seeking the glory of God? I mean, he says, he says in verse 44, he says, how can you believe me when you receive the glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Well, didn't the Jews think that that's what they were doing? Didn't Paul think that that's what he was doing, was glorifying God when he persecuted the church and he was killing Christians? Isn't that what mo- many modern preachers and and people in the church who believe a very different gospel than the gospel of Scripture will tack on in their, in their speaking and in their, in their sermons to God be the glory? Don't, don't many people today believe that they're glorifying God in, in, in the false Jesus that they're following? See, there's the danger of pursuing Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus can get me this. If Jesus can get me this, then I'll accept this Jesus. What ends up is trying to put Jesus, trying to put Jesus into a box he's not designed for. It's like when uh, a kid, you had those toys, you know, that had different shaped pegs and different size holes, and you had to 
put them in the right ones, and if you took the square peg and you tried to put it in the round hole, it didn't fit? No. Taking the Jesus of Scripture and trying to put him into the square peg of moral righteousness, moral uh, uh, betterment, um, prosperity preaching, all of these things, it doesn't fit. You actually have to change Jesus in order to make that happen. But the problem is, is you end up with a Jesus who's not the Jesus of Scripture. And the Jesus of Scripture who was speaking to these Jews is telling them about himself and they don't like it. He doesn't fit into the mold that they fashioned in their minds. So the, the question then becomes, this gets back to that, that question I asked in the beginning. What's the connection between the glory of God, between seeking the glory of God and having the love of God within ourselves? Because that's where Jesus goes. He says, I don't receive glory from men. I'm after the glory of the Father. But you're not after the glory of the Father. In fact, you think you are. You think you're pursuing the glory of God the Father, but you're not. And he says, I know you because you don't have the love of God within your heart. So now we're back to that question. What's the link between the glory of God, seeking the glory of God, and having the love of God in our hearts? Well, First, let's, let's ask the question, what is the love of God? What, what does John, well, what does Jesus mean when he says the love of God? You don't have the love of God in your hearts. Well, let's let John, the, the apostle who's writing the gospel, answer that for us. I love it when, when you have different books that are written by the same, they're penned by the same human hand, but inspired by the same Holy Spirit because it's so helpful. So, John, uh, f- so the letter of 1 John, you don't have to turn there, but just track with me. John defines the love of God. He says in 1 John 4, 7, for God is, or for love is from God. In 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16, he says twice, God is love. Now, I- in our modern culture, that concept of love is all of a sudden, I think our, our minds go to this Greco-Roman idea of romantic love. Um, a, of a love that's sort of steeped more in feelings and warm fuzzies than it is in what John's about to define. And so if that's kind of where your mind goes, take that and just throw it out the window. Okay, clear, clear your slate of what you think of, of love, romantic attraction, you know, any of those types of feelings that's, that's more based off feelings. And let, let's let John rewrite that for us. So what does he say? 1 John 4.10, he gives us a very clear definition of the love of God. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, that echoes very much what Paul says in Romans 5, 8. He says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So here's the picture of God's love for us, is that the creator loved us so much, treasured us so much, and saw our state being against him, enemies of him, that he would send his son to take our sin on himself. That's that, that propitiation word. It's, it's, it's a word that comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, where on the Day of Atonement, the Jews would take a goat and it would be a propitiatory sacrifice. All the, 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 the priest would lay his hand upon the goat's head and basically symbolically he'd be taking the sins of the people placing it on that animal and he would slaughter it right there and and the picture was or symbolically what was happening was that that animal was the propitiatory sacrifice that the the punishment that was due to the people of God was being deferred to the animal instead of them it's a picture of grace and yet they had to do that year after year after year the, the, the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It had to keep being done. And yet Christ comes on the scene. And he says, I'm that sacrifice. I'm the grace of God for you to take that sin once and for all. Past, present, future sin. Done. Clean. Slate wiped clean. Clothed in my righteousness. That's the love of God for us in the gospel. 
So God loves us. I think if I can capture that in just a simple statement, God loves us by giving up of, our, of himself for our holy good. God loves us by giving up of himself for our holy good. And I'm reminded of Paul to the Corinthians that when he writes that section about love and he describes it, he says, love does not seek its own. Or Paul, when Paul writes to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives. He's writing to the, to the Ephesians. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. God loves us by giving up of himself for our holy good. He sees our brokenness. He sees you're, you're not what I designed you to be. God doesn't come to us and just have warm, fuzzy feelings and saying, I feel bad for you. I'll just accept you the way that you are. He says, no, I, I want you to be who I've created you to be in reflecting my glory and living as my image bearer. And I'm going to forgive your sin through my son's shed blood on the cross because that's what it costs to bring you back into relationship with me. And I'm going to change you. I'm going to do a work of repentance in your heart. So, God, so John defines the love of God for us. And Jesus is saying you've got to have that love of God in your heart. But God does this because it's who he is. It's part of his nature. And I want us to see this. Okay, I told you we're going deep, right? Okay, I want us to see this because I think we could stop right there and we could, we could make application. But I think it's crucial that we see this, that this is part of the nature of who God is in his Trinitarian form because, because God desires that us, as his image bearers, reflect this. And this is going to link straight to glory. Okay? Anybody need another air tank? Okay, we good? Okay. But by the way, if you struggle with this, you struggle with this idea that, that the love of God and the glory of God, pr- that, that pursuing the love of God or having the love of God and pursuing the glory of God, that, they're, that they have to be mutually exclusive or you struggle with that, that God, can, uh, God desires that we glorify him, I encourage you to read the book um, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. Fantastic book, probably one of the best books I've read on the Trinity. Um, it, it was immensely helpful for me. Very clear language. Um, he just walks through Scripture and he, he points out connections. Here's the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he, then he makes application. What does this mean for us as his image bearers? So if you struggle with that, that aspect of the Trinity, or even God's pursuit of his own glory, um, I encourage you to read that book. Um, so there, there's my footnote plug for, for, your, for your fall reading. <laughs> it's not a long book either. It's, it's fairly short. Okay. Back on track. So God's love yeah, and his glory are not mutually exclusive. And I want to I show this and that God desires that we, that we reflect this uh, with him and, and one another. Um, flip over a few chapters to John chapter 17. If you've got time this afternoon, I'd encourage you to re- read back over the text we're looking at this morning from John 5 and then read, read John 17. It's only about 23, 24 verses. But just read that. And look at the relationship between the Father and the Son in, in, those, in, in, in that chapter. Um, I think it's, it's very edifying, it's very helpful. But um, I want to just read a few verses and, and make some comments. Because this is great, because we're going to get to this, you know, in two years when we get to John 17. Um, <laughs> but we'll get to this. So we'll work, you know, through it more in depth. Um, but I do want to just make a few, uh, a few comments on it. All right, so John, John 17. Let me just read verses 1 through 5. Jesus is, and, and to give context, this is in the section of John where um, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's hours away from going to the cross. And so this is a very intimate setting with the disciples where he's speaking with them. He's answering questions. He's giving them a framework for later how they'll understand his ministry after he's gone to the cross. And here in the very closing Uh, um, verses of this time Jesus prays and and it's one of the most intense instances where we get we kind of get a window into the relationship between the son and the father okay so here Jesus after speaking these things he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you he's going to the cross right he says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right there we see that, 
that the Father and the Son, they're, they're glorifying one another. Glorify your Son as the son, uh, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, that the glory which I had with you before the world was. Do you, do you see that? There's glory in there, that, the, that the, the Father wants to glorify the Son, the Son wants to glorify the Father. But there's a further connection there with love. Uh, look over, skip down to uh, verse 22. I'll read just 22 through 26. Um, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 22. Okay, and, and he's, he's just, then he moves on and he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for basically all believers who will come into relationship with God because of the testimony of the disciples. Which if you track through history, that's you, that's me, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ. So he's praying for us as a church. What does he pray for? Verse 22 says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one in relationship. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. There's our connection to love. And even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pause right there. Jesus desires that they'll see his glory. A glory that God the Father had given him. Why? Because the Father loved the Son. We'll continue. I'll make a couple more comments. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love which you, with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So do you see the relationship between love and glory in the Father and the Son? The, the Father loves the Son. Because of his love for the Son, he gives him all things. And he seeks to glorify the Son. But the Son loves the Father and is obedient to his will. Submits to the Father's will. And seeks to glorify the Father. Do you see how that is? you see you see how the, the, the Lord just shows us his nature and his character? That the, the Father and the Son are equal in glory and honor and that they're distinct in their submissive love and their roles. There, there's not, a, there's not a, a, a competition there. There's not a competition that they, they love one another and they seek to glorify one another. It's a beautiful picture, and it's, it, it's a, a challenge for us just as a church to live that way. If you're married for spouses to live in that kind of relationship with gospel intent and an economy of grace, but that's the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. But not only that, Jesus prays what? His intention in praying is that we would share in that, that that same giving up of yourself for the holy good of the other, love would, would happen in the lives of people who believe in him. And how's that going to happen? That happens through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus later says, uh, or John comments about the Spirit, that the Spirit's given later. He, Jesus talks about the promises that are going to be, that are coming in, in the relationship that, that believers will have with God. But John makes this comment and he says Jesus said he had said this before the Holy Spirit was given, before Jesus was glorified, before Jesus went to the cross. Paul writes this, he says that it's the Holy Spirit's job to pour out the love of God within us, to reveal the Son to us that we might see the Father and we might glorify God in his Trinitarian form. There's that, there's that relationship, okay? So let's come back up a little bit, you know, for, for air. Let me, let me kind of make a, 
just a summary statement because I want to make sure we're clear on this. Okay? So, how, what's the connection between seeking the glory of God and having the love of God within us? That if we say we know God, we must know His love through His Son. That God has demonstrated His love for us through Christ's death on the cross and He's exalted the Son. That faith in Jesus or receiving Jesus or excuse me, that if we say we know God, that we must know of His love through His Son. And that knowing of His love through His Son implies faith in Christ, faith in Jesus, receiving Him. And in so doing, we desire to seek God's glory because He's loved us. That it's His love for us that compels us to pursue His glory. In fact, I'd say we can only seek God's glory rightly if we have his love in our hearts. Otherwise, we're seeking something else. And that was the problem that Jesus points out with these Jews. You're seeking some other glory. You don't have the love of God in your hearts. And so you can't seek his glory. How can you believe? Your eyes must be opened to the love of God in the gospel. And Jesus, I said that Jesus makes this an eternal point, and he does, because here at the end of the chapter, he goes, he goes back to God's judgment. He says, don't think I'm going to accuse you on the day of judgment. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. I won't, I won't go into this aspect of, of uh, Moses preaching Christ, basically, from the Old Testament. We spent time, I think, on that sufficiently last week. But I will say this. Jesus' warning is, um, it's important for us. Because Jesus is saying, you're, you're, putting yourself, you're putting your trust in your morality. That ends up in legalism that ultimately lands in you trying to glorify yourself. Similar to what Jesus warns in the old, uh, in, uh, in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, many, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't stand there and try and accuse them. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't, I don't, I don't know you because you don't have the love of God in your hearts. You see, self-glory will lead to legalism and licentiousness neither of which will stand up on the day of judgment. So let me make some application. One, put, the, put this test that Jesus gives us to your own heart. Whose glory are you seeking? Are you seeking the glory of God? Well, whose glory are you seeking? As you go throughout your, your work day, as you go in your, in your own home, um, in, in, your, in your own thoughts, whose glory are you seeking? Are you seeking that God would be glorified or are you seeking that you would be glorified are you more interested in the praise of man than the praise of god and if you are interested in the praise of god if that if that concerns your heart and you have a desire for it is it oriented rightly are you seeking the glory of god because you have the love of god in your heart through faith in the son so put that test to your own heart today second i think I think this understanding of the, the love of God and the glory of God, it helps put commands like, like Romans 12, 20, where Paul says, outdo one another in, sh- in, uh, in showing honor to each other. I think it helps give good framework and good context to that. Because I know, I've talked with many of you, and, and many of you struggle with, how do I receive praise from people? What do I do with that? I feel uncomfortable when people honor me. And yet you have a command right here that says outdo one another in showing honor. And yet we feel uncomfortable. What do I do with that? I don't, I don't, I don't know how to take when somebody praises me. What do I do with that? I feel uncomfortable because I'm not really sure about it. And then there's the other side of that that's very easy to all of a sudden it becomes a temptation. And so you're, we're given this command and then if you're, th- if you're a thoughtful Christian and you think through it, it's like, well, I want to praise this person, but I know that the tug of the trap of glory 
And I don't want to present this as a temptation to somebody. And yet here's the command to do it. Here's the command to outdo one another in showing honor. And so how do we juggle that? And I think this framework of understanding that only through rightly understanding the love of God in the gospel and our need for grace, that we need life, that God's love for us is grace, and that then turns around and compels us to want to glorify and honor God, gives us a framework for receiving glory and it not trapping us, and that that then turns around and reflects that God gets the glory and not us, that we say thank you, and that's okay to say thank you, I appreciate that, but then all of a sudden we become small and God becomes great. God gets the glory for any goodness that we get the praise for. Do you see that? And that it's, it's a good thing to give praise to other people because what you're hoping for is that that circle gets completed and God gets the glory for it. You see, we become kind of rebounds for the glory of God. And that, that, that pleases God. That, that completes that circle. So I think this understanding helps give us con- a, a good context for, for applying those commands to honor one another. Third, this glory, love, understanding of God helps gives us really good grounds for our instructions for children. Whether, whether you have small children, whether you're a grandparent, whether you work in schools, wherever that is, because I don't know about you, but being a parent of small children, I find myself, you know, be nice to your sibling, right? Be kind to sister. Be kind. Um, say thank you. But no, constantly. Just, I don't hear thank you. There's magic words. Say thank you. Be nice to someone who's not nice to you. You got a, a friend in, you know, in class. Oh, this person was not nice to me. Well, you just need to be nice to them. Now, these things are true. But why? The gospel gives us such rich foundation for that. It's because of God's love for us and the way he's demonstrated that in the gospel to us that we should be kind. That we can say thank you as a, as a right verbal means of expressing what's going on in our heart. I, I say this and I thought of this because the way the world works in this is, is, is counter to a, an understanding of grace when it comes to love. It's reward-based. Now, there's nothing wrong with rewarding good behavior. I don't, th- I don't th- think that's, that's bad at all. I think you actually see that, that there's grounds for that in Scripture. We won't go into that today. But it's not the foundation. It's not the foundation. But the re- a rewards-based system of morality, that's the way the world works. That's the way the world understands. And if that's not balanced by Christian parents, by Christian teachers, by Christian grandparents, by the church, then grace is lost. And morality and good behavior becomes a means to an end, which is my own glory. And so I'd encourage you, teach grace to your children. Teach grace if you're a teacher and you have that opportunity to kind of rattle that foundation with students, because I'll tell you, they'd be shocked because they understand rewards. That's very easy. Oh, I get candy? Oh, I get to get in the treasure box? Oh, I get this if I'm good? Well, I'm going to be good. I'm going to get points. Like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if it's not, if it's not balanced by a foundation and understanding of grace, then that's all it's going to be. And so I challenge you to teach grace, teach the love of God to your children, to children you come in contact with, whether that's at work, whether that's through teaching you know, here at the church, wherever that is, teach that. Do that with adults too, you know? Because that, that's not a new system. That's as old as time, right? That's a, that's a system I grew up in that I constantly have to kind of go back to the gospel to remind myself because that's my, that's my trajectory to just go rewards-based. So it gives a foundation, a, a grounds for foundational instruction for our children. And then lastly, John writes this, 1 John 4.11. He says, if God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me ask you this. Are you giving up of yourself today for the holy good of others? Are you doing this for your children? Are you doing this for your spouse if you're married? If you're dating, are you posturing yourself in your relationship with your significant other 
such that you're not looking for what you can get out of the relationship, but you're looking at how can I honor this other person and pursue their holy good in this relationship? Because I'll tell you, if you're not doing that in your dating relationship, then you're going to have a really hard time actually doing that in your marriage relationship because it doesn't just shift. You're doing that with your friends, with your coworkers. In your relationship, is that a drumbeat for you? Are you, as Paul says to the Philippians, are you considering others more important than yourselves? Now, I, 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 I know because I'm in that world too. That's hard. That, that's hard. We so often want me time. That the, 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 the poster, the billboards that go up in social media, in commercials, in TV, in all the things that we see is you deserve this. You see that, see that link with rewards-based systems? <laughs> see how it works? But you deserve this. You deserve me time. You deserve your coffee break. Go to Starbucks. You know, go, to, go to wherever. You, you, know, you, you deserve this because of the goodness that you've done. You might say, well, it's so exhausting. It's just it's so hard to give up of yourself like that. I think that's an element of truth in there. It's, a, it's an echo that our sin nature is still present and that's going to be a battle until Christ returns and so we have the hope that one day we'll be free of that actually being exhausting. But I think that Jesus commands that we follow his commandments, first of which was to love one another as he's loved us, that that wouldn't be burdensome. I think he actually meant it. I don't think that, that he was just kind of speaking in a metaphor or that that was going to be completely expunged when he came back, but that that actually would be a working process here. So there's an element of truth to that, but I think that it can't just be a cop-out. So let me just, let me ask you, and I, and I say this gently because I'll, I'll be, I, I, ask, I say this because this is where my heart goes and this is what I wrestle with. Is that complaint of yours an indication that you're seeking your own glory? Does, does your doing good for others appease some form of a moral need so that you can ultimately be satisfied in doing your own thing. You know, like, I, I did this and this for so-and-so. So my reward will now be, you, you reward yourself for your good behavior for adulting. You know? Well, I did this kind of thing, so I get to go buy whatever, or, you know, this, this type of thing. That, that's, if I'm honest, that, that's actually me seeking my own glory. I'm doing something good for somebody else so that I can pat myself on the back. Or maybe that I can do it so somebody else can see me. You know, that's a challenge that Alan and I, in preaching and in, in, in shepherding, have to guard against. Not doing things so that we can get pats on the back. So that we can feel good about ourselves. So that we can have the feel that we, okay, well now I'm justified in doing whatever. Going kayaking. Not that that's a bad thing. We have to check our motives. So what's your, what's your motive in giving up of yourself for the good of someone else? And also that remember that it's Christ's, it was Christ's clear perspective of his relationship with the Father that fueled his self-giving love for you. It wasn't easy for Jesus to go to the cross. The most clear display of giving up of himself for the holy good of others. He sweat drops of blood. I don't know anybody else, but I'm pretty sure none of us have actually gone that far in our giving up of ourselves for, the, for others. But it was, it was Christ's clear perspective of his love and relationship for the Father that fueled his love for others. He promises that to us through his Spirit. And like I said, that God's, I believe that God's desire that his commands, namely that we love others in the same way, and that we pursue his glory, that they're not burdensome. That the function of the Holy Spirit is to pour out the love of God in us. And as we go to God in prayer and in the scriptures and we study and we draw closer to him, that that, that struggle and that burden becomes less and less and it actually becomes freedom and joy to give up of ourselves for the holy good of others. So I want to challenge you with that this morning. The Lord worked me over 
the coals. Um, there's a lot that in studying for this that I see I need to repent of. I need to draw closer to him and being convicted. Um, I hope it's challenging for you as well. Let me pray for us and then, uh, then we'll be dismissed. Father God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're not a tyrant. You, you could have been anything and I could have fussed about it and complained and you would still be God. But I thank you. I thank you and praise you that you are loving and merciful and gracious. And that, Father, you have poured out your love to us through the display of your Son on the cross. And you're exalting him. So, Father, may we see Jesus. May we see him in all of his glory and all of his worth. May you expound our hearts to absorb more and more of who he is and that we would through him see you, the Father. Whatever our preconceptions are about who God is, may, we, may, may you free us to set them aside to see you as you are shown in your word that we would love you and we would Desire as Christ did that you would be glorified in our lives. Would you do this, Father? Would you free us to love others in the same way you have loved us? It's not our default. It's not my default. You know my heart. You know my own selfishness. My own temptations for pursuing my own glory. Father, would you free us to set these aside? that we would come empty and naked and broken before the cross. That we would buy without money bread, the water of life. We would become, through your grace, as Christ has promised, a wellspring of living water to others. And that when, when we might receive praise, when we might receive honor, that we would be quick to say what you're seeing is not in me. It's not intrinsic to me. I'm not doing this of myself. But God is doing this in through me for you. So it's Him that gets the praise. Father, may you create a ledger in our heart of opportunities, a, a, a heart journal that we might have record of these instances where you have shown us grace and you have done this work in our hearts. That we might point others to it. That it might, it might reassure our hearts when we have doubts. When we are in the pit of darkness. Father, may we cling to you and endure. That at the end, you would be praised and you would be glorified and we would know you more and more. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face.